where we're going to be this morning, verses 27 through 30, continuing in this series, learning from Jesus' teaching, some selections from His teaching, from some of His sermons. I uh, do want to take a moment to say Happy Mother's Day. Uh, I hope if you're a mom, you got a flower, uh, just as a recognition and a thank you for what you do, for who you are uh, to your family. Uh, uh, it seems like every year when Mother's Day comes around, I don't, it's, I don't know why there isn't so much uh, thought when it comes to Father's Day, uh, but every time Mother's Day comes around, of course, there's all this care and attention giving to saying thank you and, um, and recognizing uh, what mothers are. And of course, uh, we always want to give attention also to those who desire motherhood, and yet God hasn't uh, allowed that for whatever reason, and say thank you to you for your desire. It's a good and a holy desire to be a mother, and, and thank you for desiring that, and we pray with you and ask God to give you that gift if it's what you desire, and, uh, and we'll ask Him, continue to ask Him to do that with you. And, uh, and celebrate motherhood with you as a great thing to do, a great thing to be, uh, and a great thing to desire and pray for and ask God for. So uh, motherhood is a great thing, and, and I was actually just talking with uh, Derek and Courtney yesterday. Was that yesterday? Yeah. Uh, and Courtney reminded me of the scripture when Jesus is looking at Jerusalem and he's saying, oh, Jerusalem, he's lamenting over Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you under my wings as a hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't have me. Uh, and that, that heart of motherhood really does come from the Lord, that thing that's in you, that desire and that service uh, and that act of worship to God really does come from the Lord. It's inspired by him. It's in him. He's not a mother. God is a father. And yet motherhood comes from him. And those good desires come from him, and, and he bursts those inside of his people. So good things to pray for and to do and to worship God through. So thank you, and, and we do want to honor you, all mothers and those who strive for motherhood. So, all right, we are, are continuing, like I said, in this series uh, in the Gospels, learning from Jesus um, we're calling it Word of Life. Jesus has the words of life. He is the Word of Life. And so uh, in Matthew chapter 5 here, starting in verse 27, we get more teaching from Jesus. If your Bible has red letters, uh, you would notice that uh, all, all of the words around here, probably for, for a couple of pages at least, are all red. This is all Jesus speaking in what we typically call the Sermon on the Mount went up on a mountainside and he was teaching a large crowd of people, a mixed audience of people who were devoted to him, loved him, believed in him, uh, all the way down the spectrum of people who were just kind of infatuated with him, recognized some kind of power or authority in him, but didn't necessarily believe in him uh, as the Messiah, as the one they had been waiting for, for the rescue prophesied about in the Old Testament, that one who would come, a savior. Uh, and then moving down the spectrum, you even had people who were opposing Jesus, who were following him in order to find something to accuse him of, some kind of blasphemy, some kind of heresy, some kind of sin. 
Um, and multiple times people picked up stones to stone him or gathered around him in mobs to try to push him off of cliff's edges or tear him to pieces in the middle of a Sanhedrin. And yet every time before the appointed time of the cross, uh, Jesus would somehow in his own hilarious, miraculous way just, quote, pass through their midst. Uh, and I always think of people uh, grabbing at each other and, and, you know, they think they've got the right guy in the crowd, and then all of a sudden they kind of look at his face, and he's terrified, and they're tearing the wrong person to pieces, poor guy. Uh, but Jesus would pass on. And this would happen several times throughout Jesus' ministry because he was saying things that were always so opposite of what the flesh desires. The flesh desires, even when it comes to religion, when it comes to a, an effort or a desire to please God, it always comes in this self-righteous way in the flesh. And Jesus was always, not just bumping up against that, not just in some mildly controversial way, but he was always tearing down these constructs of self-righteousness, any thought that you could please God or that you could impress God or earn fellowship with God based on your own righteousness, he was just eradicating any possibility. And so self-righteous people hated him and opposed him. And here he says some really alarming things in our passage today. Uh, and he's, as always, getting at the heart. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So the, ser the, the sermon, excuse me, sermon title this morning is what Jesus said here, it's tear it out, cut it off, which I know just sounds like, wow, I can't wait to hear. Uh, what an encouraging morning this will be. I hope it is because it's all rooted in the truth of the gospel and who Christ is and a better life available in Him than a life we could earn for ourselves. So uh, let's get to work. All right, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Uh, just as we normally do, I'll read this out loud if you'd follow along, and then we're going to stop and ask the Lord for some help. Matthew 5, starting in 27. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Let's pray. Lord, what a word from you this morning the kind of word that just stops us in our tracks. Alarming, concerning, extreme. Lord, help us to see you not as extreme this morning, but just as holy and wise and loving. Not just as a judge, but as a savior, one who's always seeking to save us. God, truly, we need you every hour we need you. In this hour, God, we need you. Apart from your presence, apart from your spirit, your love for us, your grace to us, 
We're doomed. We're without hope. Left to our own devices, our own strength, Lord, we know that we are doomed and without hope. But we know, Lord, according to your promise, that this morning gathered in Jesus' name, you are here with us. That we're not left to our own devices and our own strength. We don't have to find our own way, carve out our own path, operate in our own wisdom, trust in our own righteousness. We know, Lord, that you are here with us to supply all these things more than we could ask or imagine. So we look to you. We trust in you to fulfill our greatest need, the need to be conformed to the image of Christ, to be covered in his righteousness, to be taught by his spirit. Help us, God. We're humbled before you. Let us remain this way, please, as we learn from you. Will you please work with your power to accomplish your will in us and through us this morning? Holy Spirit, please move. Have your way in us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, Jesus here, as he's teaching, uh, as we've already recognized, as you can see reading your Bibles here, uh, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, Jesus does a lot of teaching here, and so there's a, a bit of a broader context than just this teaching on adultery or lust. The broader context here is the interpretation of the Old Testament Scriptures, because what Jesus recognized in his contemporaries and those who were teaching the Bible and who presented themselves as authorities on the Old Testament, the scriptures that they had at this time from the Lord, and they were scripture. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they were for the people to learn, to understand who God is and what it is God requires of man, how it is that you can be in relationship with God, be reconciled to him. All these things are in the Old Testament, and yet... They hadn't found their fulfillment yet in Christ, and people didn't understand the real heart and the real root of the Old Testament teaching, and so they operated on a very surface level, those who weren't really of faith, but who were self-righteous and seeking to simply earn God's favor based on their own righteousness and be saved through this system of sacrificing animals on a yearly basis and committing these kinds of traditions and rituals in order to appease God's wrath. They believed that they could actually be reconciled to God through this temporary system of sacrifice and their own righteous works, and they didn't see that just as it was with Abraham, that through faith he was righteous before God, not through his works, they didn't understand these things, and they needed Jesus to teach them and to correctly interpret the Old Testament for them so that they could see the God who is Christ is the God who has always been. And He's always been saving people and reconciling people and redeeming people in the same ways that He is here in Christ through the message of the gospel. 
So interpreting the Old Testament scriptures is what he's always trying to do. And that's why you see him say so many times, you've heard that it was said. You've heard that it was said. Well, what had been said so often was these quotations from the Old Testament about commands. You must do this. You must do that. If you do this, God will do that. If you do that, God will do this. If you act righteously, God will honor that. If you act unrighteously, God will discipline or God will punish. They didn't understand that God's kingdom is built on more than law. It's built on grace. So he's saying here, you've heard that it was said, you've heard that the scriptures say these things and you've interpreted them in a certain way. You shall not commit adultery. It's true that the Old Testament says that. You shall not commit adultery. It's a law, a command given by God. Then in verse 28, he says, but I say to you. Now, he's not contradicting the Old Testament scriptures. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. What he's doing is correctly interpreting them for his listeners. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There's something much deeper than just the surface level act of adultery that God is concerned with. This is the correct interpretation of the Old Testament because God has always been concerned with the heart that drives the behavior, not just the behavior. It's who God has always been. So when God gave ten commandments, what he didn't mean was Moses go down the mountain with these tablets and give the people these ten commandments. And as long as they outwardly adhere to these rules, I will be their God and they will be my people and they'll experience my love and we'll be in relationship to one another and we're all good. No, it was much more than that. He wanted them, as, as David says over and over again in the Psalms, to cherish the law in their hearts, not just outwardly align themselves with it, to cherish it, to love it, to value it in their hearts. So God is always concerned with the heart that drives the behavior, not just the behavior itself. Now, let me just say right out of the gate here, before anybody gets any squirrely ideas, God is very much concerned with our behavior. Amen? very much concerned with our behavior. And we're not going to play the game where we go, man, God's concerned with the heart, okay, so he's not concerned with behavior or outward appearance. No, God is very much concerned with that. But he's not only concerned with that. There are times where the outward appearance could be one thing, but if the heart is pure, God is pleased. But when we give the outward appearance of sinfulness, that's actually a problem. So we don't want to let people believe we're in sin, let people believe we've swayed from the truth and just know that in our hearts we haven't. That's a problem. Uh, Paul tells uh, people, don't even give the appearance of sexual immorality. Don't even let people think that. You should be so concerned with what people think Okay, this is a biblical idea. Let's be done with, I don't care what people think of me. I'm in Christ. Well, being in Christ will give you the concern for what people think of you. 
You want to exude Christ. You want to be an example of Christ's likeness to the world so that it matters what they think of you. They look at you and they think, that looks different. That looks like Christ. It matters what people think of us, but the outward appearance isn't what God is most concerned with. It is the heart that drives the behavior. Remember, it's the overflow of the heart. This is where the words that we speak and the actions that we commit come from, what's in the heart. So Jesus is, again, just as he always does, getting to the heart of things. But God has always been this way. It's always been God's intention to get at people's hearts, even in the Ten Commandments. We can't set the Ten Commandments apart as outward rules and instructions for behavior and forget that God was always concerned with the heart. Exodus 20, verse 17, "'You shall not covet your neighbor's house.'" You shall not covet covet your neighbor's wife, that's adultery in the heart, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, if you rebel against that command, have you actually done anything outwardly? No, this is something that's happening in the heart, to covet, to be to be sinfully jealous of something that someone else has so that you're discontent with what God has given you and you wish you had what God gave them. That is an internal battle. It's an internal sin. God's always been about the heart. And even as much as Jews wanted to return to the days of King David when they were an independent nation ruled by their own king who was chosen by God, they must have forgotten what God was looking for in an earthly king. Remember in 1 Samuel chapter 16 when David was not yet king, he was just a shepherd boy out in the field and Samuel comes to the sons of Jesse because God has sent them there to find the king, the, the next king who would uh, succeed uh, Saul. And here's Samuel looking at all the sons of Jesse but one is missing, David, because no one even considered that little shepherd boy David, little wild boy out in the fields, could possibly be the next king. There was nothing about his appearance that would give you that idea. And then at 1 Samuel 16, 6 and 7, when they came, he, that is Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. King David didn't forget this, even if the Jews of Jesus' day had. Listen to King David's prayer in Psalm 19.14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David knew that God looked on the heart, not just the outward appearance, that he wasn't just concerned with the behavior, but what was driving the behavior inwardly. He knew that because it was because of what was in his heart that he was anointed as king. He didn't have the stature. He didn't have the appearance of a king. You remember when they selected Saul as their king before David? Why did they select him? Because he was such a beast on the outside. He stood literally head and shoulders above all of his other friends. This has got to be the guy to lead us. Well, that turned out tragically. 
And David, a man of apparently smaller stature, ended up being the one anointed by God to lead the people. He remembered that. He knew that God was looking at the heart, so he was concerned not only with the words of his mouth, but with the meditations of his heart. What was he thinking? What was he feeling? What were his desires? He knew that God was concerned with these things. He wanted them to be acceptable in the Lord's sight. So then here in our text, verses 27 through 30, Jesus narrows his focus down to correct their understanding of what the Scripture teaches about holiness, sin, repentance, and he uses adultery as his example. So verses 27 and 28, let's reread. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, he's in the heart now, looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So as Jesus constantly did in his earthly ministry, as he continues to do today, he takes a temporal, surface-dwelling perspective. He peels back the outer layer and he exposes what lies beneath. Jesus always was doing this. It's what drove his opponents mad. He saw into the inward parts of what was motivating them, not just their appearance. So adultery was seen, and it was seen rightly in first century Israel as a particularly heinous sin because it violated the marriage covenant, which is meant to illustrate God's relationship with his people. In the Old Testament, God would even say, I am your husband. And now we see the fulfillment of that in Christ, that it's Christ and his bride that he's saving is the church. We are the bride of Christ. And God has always used this imagery of himself as a husband, us as his bride, and he's saving us and protecting us and cherishing and nourishing us out of his love and grace toward us. So adultery is seen as this violation of an image that God created to reflect his relationship with his people. It almost is saying to God, I think it's an acceptable thing for me to step outside of this covenant, this bond with two people where one is devoted to the other and the other is devoted to him and they have this purity of relationship and commitment to one another. I think this is fine. I think there are times when it's acceptable. God, I think it would be acceptable for you to, out, to step outside of your covenant with your people that you've made to disdain your own promise. What a sick thing. And truly, truly, adultery is a disgusting abomination. It is, it is an absolute trampling underfoot of something created by God that was meant to be cherished and protected to reflect God's love for His church and the love of the church for God. Truly, it is an abomination, reckless and sinful. And in fact, it's terribly foolish. 
Listen to Proverbs 6.32. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Destroys himself. Not only do you sin against God and you'll be liable to the judgment that God will mete out to you for your sin, but you destroy your own self when you commit adultery. It's the absolute most foolish thing that could be done in the context of marriage, to step outside of that covenant and hate what God loves. So truly, adultery, the seen outward act, is terrible and sinful and an abomination before God. But what lies underneath the surface of the act of adultery? What motivates adultery. You see, Jesus is not content with just stopping at, that is really, really bad. That is terrible and should never be done. He's willing to go deeper than that and say, but what motivates that? What, what is it in a person's heart that would drive them to do something so heinous, so egregious, so filthy and unholy before God? to abuse their spouse in such a way. Jesus peels back the outer layer, and what he reveals is lustful intent. Lustful intent, something that just stays here. It presents itself outwardly through adultery, but lustful intent is something that is happening here in the human heart. And it's possible, Jesus says in verse 28, to commit the sin of adultery without ever letting that lustful intent leave your heart. Without ever committing the outward act, the horrible, heinous, sinful thing that is such a violation of the covenant, that that violation of the covenant can happen right here in your own heart without ever physically involving another person. Jesus has really stepped up the intensity of what it means to be holy before God. It's about purity of heart, not just purity of behavior. God is not concerned with protecting the marriage covenant only outwardly. He wants it protected as sacred in the heart, cherished as highly valuable in the heart. And if it's cherished, if it's protected, if it's valued in the heart, we won't have the presentation of the outward adultery. That's beyond the desire in the person. It's undesirable to the person who cherishes and values the marriage covenant in the heart. Well, we know here that what Jesus is establishing is not just a teaching on adultery, not just a teaching on lust. It's just the case study that Jesus is using as an example to illustrate what it means to be pure-hearted, to be holy before God. It's not just about outward appearance. It's not just about outward behavior. It's about what is in the heart. Listen. To be holy before God, to honor God, 
To glorify God is not about your behavior only. Is it about your behavior? Yes. Because there are things you can do that will not glorify God. There are things that you can do that will be not from faith but from fear. Not from faith but from self-exaltation. Trying to make much of yourself rather than of God. So many things we can do. The list is almost endless. But what Jesus is getting here is there is an equally long list of things we can feel. Things we can desire. Things we can intend. That will put us in the same category as those who do the things that are only desired in us. So what he's actually setting up here is a discontentment with outward righteousness. Discontentment. There are holy kinds of discontentment. Of course, we, we know that we want to be content with the Lord. We want to be content with what He's given to us, the life that He's granted to us by His grace. We want to be content with the sacrifice of Christ, which is sufficient to cover all of, all of our sins. But we don't want to be content with our own sinfulness. I just am who I am, and God loves me just the way I am. Well, true, but are we just going to be content with being who we are today? Or do we want to strive to honor God more purely from the heart? Do we want to strive to glorify God not only in our behaviors, not only in the way people see us outwardly, but in the secret place? When we're alone with God, when no one is watching, no one knows that part of who you are, and yet there in that secret part, God is honored God is pleased. God is glorified. On that day when you see Christ face to face, He will say, I saw, well done, good and faithful servant. Not only for the things that you serve me in outwardly, but for the ways you worshipped me inwardly. Well done. We don't want to be content with just what we do, but what we desire to be honoring and glorifying to God. For this reason, because Jesus has established that God is concerned with those deep recesses, those dark places in our hearts that we've hidden from everyone else, the secrets that we would never tell, the desires that we have that we try to pretend don't exist and we just try not to outwardly produce the effects of them, but we know they're lurking and we cherish them. We protect them, those evil, lustful, sinful desires inside of us. That in that place, we would be transformed. In that place, we would be like Jesus, not only out here, but deep, deep inside here. For this reason, we must all devote ourselves to a greater goal than simply not committing adultery, simply not stealing, simply not murdering, 
For goodness sake, we don't want to commit adultery and steal and murder, but if we're content with just not outwardly committing these things and the chaos that would ensue, what kind of chaos are we willing to neglect in our own hearts and relationships because we've neglected holiness in the inward parts? Because the things that are motivating us, the meditations of our hearts are left to just fester and boil over so that inside we're sick even if outwardly we look so holy so wonderful, so acceptable. There must be a greater goal than simply not committing adultery. Our goal must be to honor God with every thought, every intent, every desire. Not only our words and our actions would be acceptable in God's sight, but even the meditations even as we sit at our desks alone with our own thoughts, that we would be worshiping, that we would be grateful to God, that we would remember the gospel, that we'd be repentant about our sin, not cherishing it, not looking for opportunities to gratify the desires of the flesh, but instead killing the flesh, murdering the flesh, abandoning the flesh, and seeking to walk always persistently by the Holy Spirit's power. And then as if Jesus hadn't already taken things up a notch or 12, he continues in verse 29. The seriousness about following God from the heart, about loving God from your most inward secret places. He says this about repentance of sin. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now this is intentional hyperbole. This is intentional exaggeration to show you the extremity, the the distance that you must go to rebel against your flesh. The actions that it's worthy to take in order to repent of sin and walk by the Spirit's holiness and and power to repent of sin and honor God. What lengths are we willing to go to? The the funny thing about what Jesus is saying is that it, it absolutely is an intentional hyperbole. He doesn't want people mutilating their bodies. But do you know it really would be worth it? For you to lose an eye and lose a hand as an act of repentance and devotion to holiness and thereby earn acceptance by God, do you know that that would actually be worth it? It would be worth it. Because anything earthly lost for the sake of an eternal reward is absolutely worth it. Anything you could lose personally in order to be made more like Christ, to walk in his ways, to obey his commands, to be made into his image is absolutely worth it. But God in his grace, in his grace to us, has said, you don't have to cut off your hand. You don't have to gouge out your eye as an act of repentance because 
in grace to us, he has supplied a Christ. Jesus has died, he's been mutilated, whipped, beaten, scorned, shamed, humiliated, spit on in our place for the sake of making payment for our sin so that we can now stand before God trusting in what Christ has done, turning to him in repentance and faith and be forgiven to trust in the work of the Holy Spirit within us to be conformed to the image of Christ. We're not cutting off hands and gouging out eyes because the Holy Spirit is cutting off and gouging out within. He's making us more like Jesus. And our repentance, our devotion, our desire, our worship must be as intense as the gouging out of an eye and the cutting off of a hand. What this gets to the heart of here, if I can just travel down the road that Jesus has set out before us, the heart of it is, how much do we love the holiness of God? How much do we worship Him for His holiness? How grateful are we for His holiness? When the holiness of God is just some marginal attribute that we know about Him, and it's not a core central tenet of His character that would cause us to burst forth and worship, how could a holy God like this accept such a wretch like me only by the blood of Christ? when we're unwilling to acknowledge and worship and savor the holiness of God, then we'll find ourselves coming short in our own devotion to holiness. Because when the Bible says God is holy and that we should be holy, that to us seems like some kind of marginal pursuit. Listen to 1 Peter. Chapter 1, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that is deliverance from the flesh finally. The battle against sinfulness decisively, finally over when Christ returns. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy, quote unquote, from God. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, that is, all of life on earth knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, that is, the self-righteous pursuit of acceptance, ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Christ has died in our place for our sins. And the outworking of that in our lives is that our devotion to holiness is that we would want to match the holiness of God in our own lives and hearts. 
That we would want to desire holiness as God desires holiness. Now we know that here in this life, we will never be holy as He is holy in the practical daily sense, right? It, it, it would be bringing God down to think that we could match His holiness. Now that doesn't say anything about some inadequacy in Christ as if what He accomplished on the cross was insufficient because all of Christ's righteousness credited to us is freely given as a gift and makes us pure before God to be reconciled and accepted by Him. That is the eternal work of Christ done at the cross that cannot be undone. Yet the day-to-day living is still a work to be completed. And Paul says in Philippians 1, he knows that this good work in us to make us like Christ, that we would be holy as God is holy, will be completed at the day of Jesus Christ. And we should hope in that day and strive for that day and pray for that day. In the meantime, are we as devoted to holiness as God is? Have we grown in maturity in Christ, been transformed inwardly to be like Christ in the inward parts, not just the outward, so that our desires are transformed? So that we don't want to just look Christian, we want to be Christian. We don't want to just appear holy, we want to be holy. We don't want people to just think of us, they seem so devoted to Christ, so devoted to righteousness. We want to be devoted to Christ and His righteousness. In the inward parts, in such extreme devotion that honestly, if if I can just be real with you, I think we we could all agree with this if we're willing to be honest. This kind of devotion to holiness in the inward parts will make you weird among Christians. It'll make you weird among other people who call themselves Christians. And we're not trying to be elite here because it's the lowly of heart, the humble, the meek that will inherit the kingdom. Those who know they're in such desperate, agonizing need of the work of the Spirit to transform them, those are the ones that receive grace. So let's stay lowly, let's stay humble before God, let's count ourselves as the chiefs of sinners, but let's be willing to be oddly, oddly, weirdly devoted to holiness, whatever that would require of us. This is what Jesus is saying. What does that require of you? If I can ask us this morning, as a point of, honestly, very impractical application, because there's not something you can just like, here's three things you can go home and do this week, and you'll be so much more like Jesus next Sunday, all right? This, this, is, this is radically impractical advice. Start asking God, What does this kind of devotion to holiness require of me? What do I need to lose? What needs to be cut off? What needs to be torn out? What kind of loss do I need to suffer for the sake of being made more like Christ? 
And if you would join me in a prayer, I know it would exalt God, it would please God, it would honor and glorify God, and our lives from the inward parts would be transformed so that he'd be more pleased with us and more freely work through us to magnify Christ in the world if you would join me in this prayer. God, please don't withhold anything from me that would make me more like Jesus. Oh, what a terrifying prayer to the flesh. That will absolutely derail and uproot every plan you've ever made for your life when God says yes to your prayer. God, don't withhold anything from me, any suffering any tearing out, any gouging out, any cutting off, any throwing away, anything you must do to make me more like Christ. Please, God, do it for your name's sake. He's worthy. He's worthy of all devotion, all worship, all repentance, all trust. He is worthy. If we're not striving towards the finish line, if we're not pursuing like a racer, stretching himself out to receive the goal at the end of the line, if we're not dying to get there to the point of shedding our own blood, then was Christ worthy? He is worthy. Let's tear it out. Let's cut it off. Let's devote ourselves wholeheartedly to the glory of God inside us and let it produce the results outwardly that the world would see our good works and glorify God. Oh, how we need God for this. We so desperately need God if we are to be holy as he is holy. We praise him that he's supplied Christ in our place, that it's by grace through faith that we are saved, not by works so that no one should boast. It is the gift of God. And the good works that we now do our works that were prepared beforehand that we should walk in them to the exaltation of the name of Christ, to the humbling of our own selves, that we would be forgotten, Christ would be remembered, that he would be honored in our flesh and in our hearts. He is worthy. Let's pursue this goal together by the power of the Holy Spirit. If this pursuit is starting for you now, then let's fly out of the gate together. And, and if you're mid-game here, let this energize you and revitalize your devotion to holiness. And if you're an old saint who's been walking with God a long time and cherishing his word in your heart and walking with him humbly, please help us along. Encourages us. Teach us. Help us. Let's pray. God, we need you. We are here before you now, reduced in our perspective, I hope, to the place where we really are. 
at the feet of a merciful God, pleading the blood of Christ, asking for your help. Let us see ourselves as we are, Lord. Died for, loved, accepted, brought near by the blood of Christ, in Christ, established in Christ, seated in Christ, having received every gift that we need, every equipping that we need, all the knowledge that we need to live for you in this age, and yet still in this body of flesh in such great need of repentance and transformation. Help us, Lord, to live up to our identity in Christ, to be who you've called us to be, Help us, Lord. Even now, I ask you, Holy Spirit of God, will you minister to all of us here? Will you peel back the outer layer? Will you reveal what lies beneath? Will you bring us to a place of real honesty with you and ourselves to answer the question, what does Jesus' teaching require of us? If we are to be this devoted to honoring you in the inward parts, to be holy as you are holy, Lord, please make it our sincere prayer to not withhold anything from us that would make us more like Jesus for the sake of your name. Help us, Lord. Spirit, please move with your power on us. Please move with your power on us. Empower us to repent, to devote ourselves like never before. Help our love for you and your holiness be worthy of you. You are worthy, Lord. Thank you for your ministry to us. We entrust this time to you, Lord, to continue working in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to continue now worshiping the Lord, remembering what he's done for us and the life that he's called us to, remembering his sacrifice for us and his coming return through communion. So these brothers are going to pass out the elements for communion. Please take this time to, uh, to remember the death of Christ in your place for your sins, to repent of any sin that you've been holding in your heart and to trust in Christ for forgiveness, knowing that his blood covers all your sins, past, present, and future. And when the elements have all been passed out, another one of our elders is going to come and lead us in taking communion together before we continue in worship.